0: Well, good morning. Oh, you could do better than that. Good morning. good morning. Oh, that's that's good. I I I want at least a chance to put you to sleep. I don't want you to start that way. <laughs> Give me a break. Uh actually it's 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 a uh, it's a joy to be here at Christ Proclamation Church. Uh I think this is maybe the fifth time, something somewhere around that 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 uh, Betsy and I, my wife is here for this service, um, have been here with you, but the church has been uh, in our hearts since before it began, because uh, back in 2011, I think it was, maybe 2012, uh, Betsy and I were at a uh, conference in Massachusetts, and we were introduced to Steve and Linda Field, and told that they were... Hoping to plant a church in Connecticut. And uh, right from the very beginning, uh, we fell in love with their heart for Christ and his gospel and, and, um, and for his church. So we have been praying for this uh, work of God since before it began. And we've enjoyed keeping in touch uh, with what's going on here. And I've just been encouraged. Um, it's been a blessing to get to know. I think I've met all of your elders. Um, but I've had the opportunity to work a little bit uh, more with Marcus uh, and uh, the work of the Connecticut Baptist Association. Uh, Josh and Rachel Carollo have been in our, at our church twice, once to share during our Sunday school uh, with our adults and teens, and then another time Josh preached not that long ago. So um, I want you to know that you are blessed to have such godly men um, leading the church. And, um, and I hope that you thank God for them and keep them in your prayers. Uh, but before I go any further, I wonder if I could pray and um, you would join me in asking the Lord's blessing on this time. Holy Spirit, will you be our teacher today? Lord, you know all of my weaknesses and failures, but you have also shown me your amazing grace in Christ. So I pray that my words might honor Christ today and strengthen your people. Give us eyes, all of us, to see the wonderful things in your law. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So one of the, I think, most difficult and painful life experiences that I'm guessing everyone here has had um, is the experience of alienation or estrangement from someone you used to be close to? Uh, maybe you have had a falling out with a friend over some serious disagreement, or something happened and feelings were hurt, and or maybe you just drifted apart. But that person that you used to be close with, that used to share, you know, everything that was going on in your life with you, you're not hardly talking with anymore, or maybe there's a, a family member that you don't speak with because of uh, things that have happened that make you feel unsafe to even be with that person. Uh, and even in, in families that appear outwardly harmonious, alienation happens. How do I know that? Because I'm a member of a family. <laughs> and um, uh, Betsy and I have been married for 46 years. Um, and I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that I think it's, it's been a good marriage. You can ask her after the services, she agrees, but I can tell you in our 46 years of marriage, there have been times of serious alienation and estrangement. Sometimes it's been through busyness and neglect. Mostly I'll take responsibility for that, um. Sometimes it's been through conflict um, when uh, one or both of us were more committed to having our own way than to the unity of our marriage. In his excellent book uh, on marriage, by that title, uh, uh, David Paul Tripp uh, speaks about how we all tend to live for our own little kingdom of one. And you know, if you got two people, each living for their own kingdom instead of God's kingdom, you're going to have alienation. You're going to have conflict in the marriage. How about the church? We're supposed to be God's family, right? The household of faith. Well, read the New Testament or spend some time in any church and you will find alienation happens there as well. Indeed, I've known people have given up on the church because of the hurt and alienation that they've experienced. But this morning, I want to suggest something to you that maybe you've never thought about or I'm sure none of us have thought about enough. And that's that, that, that the alienation that we so often experience between us and other people is not the basic problem. It's a symptom of a deeper alienation caused by sin in our relationship with God. And until that alienation is repaired, and only as we live in the reconciliation that God uh, supplies between us and himself, can we even hope to work towards reconciliation with one another. And, and so that's what we want to talk about this morning, because the good news is God loves reconciliation. He's made a way for us to be reconciled to himself, and he's made a way for us to be reconciled to each other. And the, the passage that we're going to look at this morning points to that way that God has made. Although, let me just warn you, uh, it doesn't seem like that on the surface at first reading. I have to admit that when I first read Numbers chapter 5, the first four verses, it seemed to me like God was actually causing alienation. And I didn't understand why that was. But, but as I dug in to what, The Bible teaches that sheds light on that passage. uh, I began to see no, God is actually uh, using this passage to teach us something about alienation and reconciliation as well. So turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 5, and we're going to read just the first four verses for starters, anyway. And uh, I forgot to ask in the first service. but And I don't know if you do this here, but I'm, I'm going to ask you if you don't mind uh, if you're able to stand uh, for the reading of God's word as a way of honoring the Lord who's given us these truths. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge Or everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people did. I invite you to take your seat, but keep your Bibles open. And get ready to turn to some other passages as well that I think will help us understand what we just read. So the first challenge in understanding this admittedly strange passage um, comes simply from the fact that it's the fourth chapter in the fourth book of the Bible. So there's a lot that has happened that leads up to this point. And I want to take just a moment to to kind of bring you from the beginning to where we are now, very briefly, kind of flying over at 30,000 feet. So the story of humanity, human history, the Bible tells us, starts with three people in a perfect place, enjoying perfect fellowship with one another. There was a man, there was a woman, and there was the God who had created them. These three enjoyed a relationship of love, of unity, of affection, trust, joy. For these newly created human beings, life was a continuous adventure of discovering things about themselves, about the world in which they had been placed, and about the God who had created it all. God was their teacher, He was the provider of every good gift. And in the life that he gave them, there was no such thing as pain. There was no such thing as fear. There was no such thing as sadness. And all of that changed in a single day. When the man and the woman listened to the tempter and decided that they knew better than God what was best for them. And so they disobeyed the only prohibition God had placed upon their lives. And as soon as that happened, alienation became a fact of life. Starting with their relationship with God. You remember in Genesis 3 that uh, God comes to them as he had come to them before in the garden where they lived. And what do they do? They, they run and hide in shame and in fear. But it's not just alienation between them and God because you see right there at the beginning. When God confronts the man with the sin for which he was responsible, what does he do? He places the blame the wife that God had given them. And so alienation enters into human relationships. You don't have to go far just another chapter and it's even affected the next generation so that one brother in hatred and anger kills another. It's the story of human history. It's the story of every family in its dysfunction. And if you have not met a if you have if you have ever met a family that doesn't have some kind of dysfunction Um, I'd like to meet them too, because I I haven't, and I know it's not mine. Uh, But the Bible does more than show us the root of this alienation uh, in uh, uh, humankind's disobedience to God. It also tells us what God has done to bring about reconciliation, both between us and God, us, the descendants of Adam, the children of Adam, and God. Uh, and also what he has done to bring about reconciliation between alienated human beings on the horizontal level. This revelation of God's plan begins with a cryptic promise that's given on the same day that the human race fell into sin. When God says in Genesis 3.15 to the woman, I will put enmity between you and the tempter. But then he switches from The seed of the woman, plural, and to the seed of the woman, singular, when he says, he, the descendant of the woman, will crush the head of the tempter while he himself will be wounded. Uh, Later, God speaks to a man named Abraham. And, and, and he says to this man uh, who's well advanced in years, married to a woman who's past the age of childbearing and they are a childless couple and God promises not only a child but one day descendants as numerous of the, as the grains of sand on the seashore and as the stars in the heavens. And he also says that through you... All the nations of the world will be blessed, hearkening back to the, the promise of Genesis 3.15, but now uh, revealing more of it, that it will come become through a descendant of this man, Abraham. Well, by the time we get to Numbers 4, uh, Abraham has a, a, a multitude of descendants, that picture of the stars in the heavens and the grains on the seashore starts starts to make sense as from this one man and his and the son that god gave him isaac there is now this great nation a nation that found itself enslaved in another country in Egypt, but now has been rescued from that slavery through, through Moses. And, uh, and they're on their way to a land that God has promised to give them. And if you, if you look, especially in Exodus uh, chapters 2 and 3, and you look at the pro- uh, God uh, describing the land to which he's going to bring his people, there are hints of Eden there a land flowing with milk and honey, a a land of carefree abundance, a land of fruitfulness, a land uh, of God's protection and and love. Uh, They have left Egypt. They have been camping out at Mount Sinai for about a year when we get to the book of Numbers. God had given them uh, his law, made a covenant with them to bring them into this special relationship with himself where he would be their God and and they would be his people. But even more amazing, God had promised that he would go with them and live with them in the midst of this new land. He tells them they're going to be living in tents for uh, an indefinite period of time. It turns out to be 40 years. They don't know it at that point. But they're going to be living in tents as they travel from the land of slavery to the place of freedom. And God says, I will camp out with you. And so he has, he has God's people in the book of Exodus, the last several ch- chapters. He's describing this tent that he wants them to make as his home in the midst of his people. A place where they can come and sacrifice and pray and praise and sing and celebrate and worship the God who is present with them. And just to show that he's present with them, you get to the very end of the book of Exodus. The temple, the tabernacle, this tent has been completed. Everything has been prepared and set up just as God has told them to do so. And it says there that the glory of the Lord came down. And it filled the tabernacle. And God is now dwelling in the midst of his people. Well, a year has passed, and they're getting ready to break camp in Sinai and start the journey to the promised land. That's where we are in the book of Numbers. The whole book is really about that in-between time. They've been delivered from slavery. They're on their way to the promised land. It's one of the reasons why I love the book of Numbers, because we're living, it really parallels the time we live in between the salvation that was accomplished for us on the cross when Christ came into our lives, and the f- completion of that salvation in a new heavens and a new earth. We live in between those two times as well. And we're on a journey just as spiritually, just as they were, both spiritually and, and, and physically as well. In the uh, first chapter of Numbers, God has them number the people. There's a census, which is how the book gets its name. In the second uh, chapter, and I love this, God organizes, arranges the camp and it's, and it's important to notice that like uh, there are the, the nation is composed of 12 tribes descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. And, he, and God says, three tribes are to be in the north, three tribes are to be in the south, three in the east, three in the west. And where is the tabernacle? Right in the middle of all of them. God even says, when you travel, when you pick up stakes and you pick up my stakes, then the Levites are to carry the tabernacle with six tribes in the front and six tribes in the back. Again, God is reminding them, I'm in your midst. I'm living among you. You're not going alone. We're we're on this journey together. Uh, And then we get to chapter 5, and it's somewhat shocking because after all of that, um, God says, by the way, there are three kinds of people that can't be in this camp. There are three kinds of people that can't get that close to me. And, uh, and it's, it's strange because there's no mention that these people had done anything wrong, they, that they had broken any commandments they had just been unfortunate enough to, to have either have some kind of physical ailment, like, the, and when you read the word leprosy, this, this, uh, the Hebrew word refers to uh, a variety of skin, skin conditions, not all of which are what we think of as leprosy today, Hansen's disease, I, I think it's called. It's a variety of skin uh, conditions, but if you had one of those... You couldn't be in the camp, you had to go out of the camp. And, and pray that you would be healed. And a lot of times people were healed. We know that because in, Levit- in Leviticus uh, chapter uh, 14, 13 and 14, there's, there's there people are told what to do. If you, you're healed of your leprosy, then you are to go through a ceremonial washing and make sacrifices. Same thing for a person who's been unfortunate enough to have a, a, a relative die and you have to prepare the body. It was That was the responsibility of the family. Well, then you had to go out of the, the camp for a specified period of time, and then you could come back in. And then finally, uh, anyone who had a, a discharge, this would include uh, at least half the, well, let me just say, this, this would include um, women in their experiencing their menstrual period, so for a period of time, they couldn't be in the camp, but it would all include male or female who had some kind of condition that, that produced this em- emission from the body, why would God do that to people? The, one of the, probably the most popular explanation that's been given over the years is that this was a, a public health policy, right? We know, for example, that uh, even today, that in the close confines, say, of a refugee camp, that disease can spread very quickly. So, so that's, one, that's probably the most popular suggestion that's been made over the years. The only problem with that explanation is it's not given in the text. In fact, there's a different explanation given in the text. Look at, with me again at verse 3. It says, you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, pay attention to what comes next, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. The central issue is God is in the midst of that camp. And for reasons that aren't really fully explained here, the presence of these people would bring defilement. It's a spiritual issue, in other words. But, that's, but what kind of sense does that make? Well, to understand that, it helps to read a little farther in the text. So look with me, starting in verse 5, and we will see two specific kinds of sin, two examples of sin, actually probably three. One, I think, is a, a, a combination where, um, where there's, a, there's also clearly a moral and spiritual defilement that's taken place. In fact, in a, a little, little bit further down, we'll see that word defiled again three more times. So in verse five, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord and that person realizes his guilt he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest in addition with the ram for the atonement with which atonement is made for him. Then skip down to verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel: If a man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected though she has defiled herself, so there's, there's that word again, and there is no witness against her since she has not taken she, she was not taken in the act, and if." Uh, the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife though she has not defiled herself. And I'm going to stop there because it would take a whole ex- uh, another sermon to explain the process uh, by which um, uh, the the man and the and, and the community were to discover what the truth was and to deal with that. But here's here's the point. A couple of things to, to notice. Uh, first, the first case is a case of wronging a uh, a brother in a way that hurts him financially, right? So that would include taking something that didn't belong to you, breaking the commandment, thou shalt not steal. It could also involve breaking the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. Maybe you made a promise to someone or you misled someone through something that you said, you know, a shady business deal, whatever. And and what happens when we discover someone has broken faith with us? In other words, they've been dishonest with us. You stop trusting them, right? That's that's a form of alienation and estrangement because every relationship has to be based on trust. You don't just share your heart or your life or anything of value to you with someone you can't trust. And so here we have a situation in which trust, that trust has been broken and therefore the relationship has been broken and God has made a way uh, for that trust to begin to be rebuilt, although we all understand trust is a whole lot easier to lose than it is uh, to 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 build. That in most relationships there's serious work. Involved on the on both parties when a serious uh, uh, betrayal of trust has taken place, but God is pointing to to a way that that can happen in terms of financial dealings. That if I if I've wronged you in some way that has hurt you financially, I I confess it to you, um, and uh, and ideally I, I you don't even, maybe don't even know it, so that shows that I'm sincere. And but not only that. I show the, the sincerity of my uh, repentance by not only paying you back what you lost, but, but adding a fifth to it as, as for rest, at restoration. I'm doing everything I can to make things right with you that we might have a reconciled relationship. But I want to point out something that's interesting in this, in this text. If you go to verse 6, we've been talking about when one person breaks faith with another, But notice how God describes it here. He says, uh, when a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord. Do you remember in Psalm 51, David's prayer of confession uh, after being confronted by Nathan the prophet? At one point he prays against you and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Was David saying that he hadn't sinned against Uriah, whose wife he had stolen and whose life he had had stolen? No, he wasn't saying that. But what he was acknowledging is that at the deepest level, whenever I sin against you, I'm, I'm, I'm offending the God who made you in his image, right? Every human being, whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not, every human being is made in the image of a glorious and holy God. And when we sin against each other through dishonesty, through disrespect, uh, through any kind of unfaithfulness, uh, we aren't just sinning against one another. We've got a more basic problem than that, which is where all sin begins in our relationship with God. That's the root cause of the other kinds of sin in our life. When we're not right with God, we, we don't stay right with one another for very long either. And so uh, in this case, God describes it as breaking faith with him. But if you go down to verse 12, in speaking of, of uh, the most intimate relationship of trust that can exist between any two human beings there it's also acknowledged that here there's been a a horizontal, not just a vertical breaking of faith, right? If a man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him. And, And then, as I've already mentioned, three times this sin is spoken of as defilement, which is the same word that we found in the explanation for people being sent outside the camp. Uh, if you look up the word "defile" or "defilement" in a uh, in a dictionary, you will find um, uh, you will find defi- definitions such as "corrupt it," "contaminate it," "spoiled." So when I looked it up in the dictionary, the picture that I got because I'm a, I'm a, a a red meat lover is like this wonderful piece of steak um, that got left out. On a hot day, you know, and and by the time you got home at the end of the day, it was not fit to be eaten anymore. It started, you know, changing all kinds of gross colors and and maybe you went away longer than a day and it had maggots in it. Okay, that's the kind of picture we should think about when we think about something, something or someone being defiled. And what we discover here as we read this text is that's what sin does to us. It defiles us. We, I instinctively notice this unless we so suppress our conscience, which is a dangerous thing to do. But we all have done things that have made us want to hide afterwards in shame and fear. That's because of the defilement of the sin. It's like a cancer. So that if you, you tell one lie... It's going to be much easier to tell another one and another one after that because it's spreading through your own heart and mind and corrupting you. And eventually, you may have trouble distinguishing between the truth and your, the own, your own lies because that's what sin does. You look uh, at, at someone in lust and you entertain that. If you don't confess that as sin and repent, it, it, soon, soon you're addicted to lust and to porn and, and all kinds of sexual uncleanness and it affects every relationship that you have. That's what sin does. It defiles you. You, uh, you respond in frustration with, uh, with sinful language, disrespecting God or disrespecting the people around you and it very quickly becomes a habit if it's not dealt with early on. That's the defiling uh, nature of sin. But were these people any more defiled than anyone else in the camp? The answer is no. We're all defiled. The Bible says in in, uh, Isaiah 64, uh, verse 6, that even our righteous deeds are like defiled Garments, like the filthy rags, right? Even when I do the right thing, if I examine my heart closely enough, there's always impurity in my motives, pride, a desire to be admired by men, more uh, wanting to please other people than pleasing my Lord. These are sins that I have to fight with every day of my life because they have defiled my heart and only by God's grace do I have any uh, measure of victory. This is what sin does. So the real thing that should surprise us is not that certain people got left out of it, put out of the camp. What should surprise us is that anybody was left there at all. That's what should surprise us. And yet, at the same time, God did make a way to deal with not only this ceremonial defilement, but the defilement of sin. To understand that, we need to go to the New Testament. So quickly turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to read you three short accounts of three different healings. Taking together, these healings actually represent all three groups of people that are talked about in Numbers 5, verses 1 to 4. But I want you to notice as I read the text, pay close attention to how these people are healed. So in chapter eight, verse one, we read, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then go over to chapter 9 verse 18. There it says that while he was saying these things to them, behold, a a ruler came in and knelt before them saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. Now, he had already been told that the girl had died. He he knew that she was dead. He was was describing her condition as sleeping because he was about to wake her up. But notice how he does it. It says... In verse 25, that when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Did you notice that? In all three of these healings, touch was involved. Twice initiated by Jesus, the leper and the girl who had died, and once initiated by the woman, who had faith that if she could just touch the man's garment, the Lord's garment, she would be healed. Here's the thing, however. The reason why people were put outside the camp was so that the uncleanness would not be spread by physical contact. According to a ceremonial law in the Old Testament, if you touched something or someone who was unclean, you became unclean. So, did Jesus have to go outside the camp? Let me just quickly read to you two verses from the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. They're dead bodies. They have to be taken and burned outside the camp. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You see, Jesus was the son of God, eternal son of God, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, making him truly God and truly man, but also making him the first man since Adam, who came into the world, I'm talking about Adam before the fall, who came into the world undefiled by sin. Like Adam, Jesus also was tempted. Like Adam, Jesus had the choice to either follow, follow the will of the Father or to decide that he knew better and to do things his own way. But unlike Adam, Jesus never defiled himself by disobeying the Father. And then on the cross, what did he do? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, are there things in your life that have defiled you? Are there things in your life, even now, that are hard for you to look at or to talk about, that you, fill you with grief? Let me tell you the good news that if you trust Christ, if you've turned from that sin and put your trust in Him, you no longer bear your shame. That shame was nailed to a cross. That defilement was placed on Jesus on a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago. And when God raised him from the dead, God was saying, come to him, turn from your sin, put your trust in him, and you will have his righteousness to wear instead of your defilement. That was placed on on him, But it gets, there's even more to it than that because once we are reconciled to God, once we have acknowledged our sin to God, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, and, uh, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all defilement. But that also works its way out in our relationships with one another. What do you do when you realize that you have broken faith with someone else? What do you do when, when you realize that you have wronged someone through something that you've said or done, you've caused hurt in their life? Matthew chapter five, verse 23 in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go to that brother and be reconciled. Because we have been forgiven, we can forgive each other. The other side of it is also uh, true. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. When someone has wronged you, it says, if your brother sins against you, go, just the two of you, and show him his fa- fault. Fault. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Friends, these kinds of interactions ought to be normal in our lives in church because I don't know about you, but there aren't very many days that go by when I don't sin in some way. And it it impacts the people around me, the people closest to me most of all. That's part of what we've learned in 46 years of marriage that there needs to be a lot of coming to one another and saying, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that. And there needs to be a fair amount of also coming and saying, you shouldn't have said that, you shouldn't have done it, because we are often blind to our own sin and defilement. We have a role to play in one another's sanctification. You have to play it right. You have to play it with love and humility, knowing that you too are a sinner saved by grace. But this ought to be normal in every Christian marriage. It ought to be normal in, in every Christian family. And it ought to be normal in every Christian uh, church because we are people of the gospel. For goodness sakes, we know what Christ has done to remove our sin and our alienation. Now, in this life, reconciliation is not always, it doesn't always happen in our human relationships, right? Right? Sometimes you may go to that person that you have wronged and they don't forgive you. You should pray then for that person because you know what Jesus said, right? Did we just pray it a moment ago? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. My receiving forgiveness from God and my forgiving those who have wronged me are a package deal. You can't separate them. That's what Jesus was teaching in that prayer and in other places in the Gospels as well. So maybe that person doesn't forgive you and maybe the reconciliation doesn't happen the way you, you want it to. It doesn't mean it never will, but that's, that's being in this in-between time. You know, between Egypt and the promised land where we live, that's part of it. And sometimes you go to that person to show them that, their fault and they're stubborn and not willing to see it. You still love them, you still forgive them, you probably shouldn't trust them, right? The reconciliation is not yet complete. But one day we will live in a world that has been perfectly reconciled to its creator. You know, if you you keep reading in uh, the book of Numbers, and go even further in the story of Israel, you learn that uh, the people eventually made it to the promised land, and uh, they started building permanent homes for themselves, and then Solomon, with the Lord's blessing, took it upon himself to build a more permanent home for the Lord, so now he was no longer living in the midst of his people in a tent, but in a temple, and yet that, that home was temporary too, Right? The people rejected the savior that, that uh, was sent to them and suffered the consequences of the destruction of their temple as Jesus said would happen and as did happen 70 AD. But you know there's still a temple, don't you? There's still a place where God dwells in the midst of his people in a beautiful and wonderful way. You're in it right now and I'm not talking about this building. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, the church is described as the temple in which God dwells by his spirit. Jesus said, wherever two or more gather in my name, there I am in their midst. And so, all of us who by our sins deserve to be outside the church by the grace of God through the gospel and the faith that the Holy Spirit has produced in that gospel have been brought within, reconciled to God and we trust growing in our reconciliation with one another. And the best is yet to come because as God, as, as the story of hu- the human race begins in a, in a perfect place, it ends in a perfect place as well. Let's finish By looking at that description, second to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. The word actually there in the Greek is the word for tabernacle, by the way. The tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It's a return to Eden only better because now we know what the Lord has purchased through his own blood for us. In verse five, and and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. The world is being reconciled. We are experiencing it. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse seven, the one who conquers... That is, who remains in Christ. The one who holds on by God's grace to the saving, Savior in his work will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But here's the hard part and the final warning for us today. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and, and all liars... Stop there for a minute and realize, Paul had a list like this in, in 1 Corinthians and he said, such were some of you. All of us fall in these categories someplace or other, right? He's talking about those who reject the reconciliation that's been offered and remain in their sin. He says their portion will be outside the camp, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, eternal alienation. Every one of us here, right this moment, is on a road that leads to one of those two destinations. Which road are you on today? If you don't know, you need to find out. You need to talk with someone, one of the elders or a person that you know in this church who knows the Lord. I'm happy to stay for a few moments and talk but make sure that you lay hold of this great reconciliation that God offers us through his son. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the great reconciler. And so we pray that how we live our lives might point others to your reconciling p- power. That we might be those who live daily underneath the cross, bringing our, our sins and our regrets, our failures to you there and receiving and trusting in your blood that cleanses us. Help us to live that out also in our relationships with one another. I thank you, Lord, for Christ's Proclamation Church and the witness to the gospel that this congregation gives. I pray that that witness would be ever stronger and stronger as your people here live in that reconciliation. I pray that where uh, relationships have been damaged by sin, as happens in this, this side of eternity, Lord, that, that the people here would be quick to seek reconciliation, that the unity of the church might be protected and preserved. Lord, do this for the glory of the Savior. For we ask it in his name. Amen.